If you have the Word of God, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today, um, summarizing some sections. I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 25 to begin our time together. What a powerful declaration of the gospel. Jesus paid it all. I've said I want that song at my funeral, congregational singing, so Clay, remember that. You got that note. It's just a reminder that you and I, we can bring nothing, nothing to God to earn his acceptance, and yet we don't have to. Jesus paid it all, paid the payment for our sins, the debt that we owe for our sin, Jesus paid it all. The blood of Christ that washes us of our sin, the most valuable being in the universe God gave over to deliver us from our sin. That, that should shake us to the core. That should change the way that we do everything here today. We're not paying God back for anything. We can't pay God back. Jesus paid it all. And he in light of the cross, in light of what he has done for us, he affords us this opportunity to come before his word and he's given us his spirit because he's paid it all that we might be transformed by his word today. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Understanding as we continue to move through Acts that we stand today as a ripple effect of what's going on in this book. But we're not looking into an ancient fairy tale that has nothing to do with us. What we are reading here, we are a reverberation of that. We stand today as a ripple of what God started here in the book of Acts as Jesus promised that we would be witnesses beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Richmond at that time would have been the ends of the earth. The apostles wouldn't have had a bunch of white folks in mind standing and reading the Bible when Jesus said that. They wouldn't even envision this. And we stand here as a work of Christ that begun here, began here. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Oh God, I pray that we would see your glory in this passage today. That, that we would stand in awe of, of your witness. That we would be amazed of, of what you started here and what you continue to do in our presence today by the power of your Spirit as we stand and we read your witness. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. As we submit to him in song, in praise, as we, as we bow down before him and say, no other name matters. As we declare that, that with our lives we, we crown him the Lord of glory. As we, as we declare Jesus is better and yet pray and plead that you would, you would help us believe. As we have declared Jesus paid it all. God, we declare Jesus is Lord and King and your witness reverberates here today. Would we feel it? Would we see it? Would we be amazed by it? Would we be changed by it? It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It was the classic 80s sitcom episode where the parents go out of town that was happening right before my very eyes. I was 18, and my mom and my stepfather were headed to Mexico for vacation. And I asked my mom, I said, can, can I have a, a couple friends over? And, and she turned to me, and I don't know why she said these words, but these words spoke evil into my life. They were like a death sentence, like a prophecy of what was about to happen. She said, yes, you can have friends over, a few, but no parties. No parties. And if you've ever watched any of the 80s sitcoms, that you know what was about to happen. I invited one friend over who is just a little bit of a wild card. I didn't trust him very much and should have known better. Who invited another friend? Who invited another friend? who invited another friend. And before I knew it, on a Friday night at my house, I turned around and there was between 60 and 100 people surrounding my house. This is no exaggeration. You can ask my mom the next time you see her. She will tell the story very vividly. And I look out in front of my house and there are cars everywhere. And I'm turning to my friends going, what did you do? What is going on? People knocking on the door. Is this where the party is? And it just so happened. I, I broke this down in my mind. How did this happen? It, it, it was just perfect timing in our small Tennessee town. There were no baseball games, no basketball games, no football games. It just fell on the right evening. And the invitation got out around town, and, and folks, you know, there's a party at Haskins. There's a party at Haskins. And all of a sudden, all these people are teeming and swarming my house. Now, for you young adults in high school, this is what 
uh, teenagers used to do when they used to hang out together and socialize. You like to go home and text and Snapchat and play video games in isolation. But we used to like to be around each other. <laughs> and these sort of things actually happen. But, but I say that to say, don't try this at home. Don't ever do this. I got in a lot of trouble for what happen- happened. Because within an hour, I had folks jumping off the very top of my house into a swimming pool. I had a sister, my, I have a sister, my sister well, it was a few houses down, and, and she saw all of the cars, and she, she is confused, and she is bewildered, and, and, and she calls me, and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what is happening here. And she says, you're going to be killed. You're going to die. This isn't good. And I was 18, and, and, and I knew things had gotten out of control when I ran into that 35-year-old loser who, who never leaves town and just hangs around the small town. And, and he showed up at my house, and I said, enough is enough. You guys have got to go. You've got to get it. I don't know, I don't know what's, go, what's about to happen. And I start running through the house, running through the yard. Get out of here. And no one was leaving. No one was leaving. And I said, okay, I'm calling the cops. I am calling the cops to my house. I don't care about the consequences. And finally, everybody just sort of trickled out, trickled away. But it's two hours of my life I look back and say, that makes no sense. I talked to my mom and my sister about it and say, did that really happen? Did that really ever happen? Did I do that? Did that happen? Well, we get to this point in the book of Acts. And this invitation, this word about Jesus is getting way out of control. And it's making a lot of folks uncomfortable because they don't have any control over it. The word is just spreading. The word is moving through Jerusalem and Judea. And they can't get their hands around it and stop it. And there are people showing up to the party and they're saying, how did you get here And in the next few chapters, we're going to say, how do folks like that show up here? How do they get in on this? And I'm just going to warn you, if you want a Christianity that looks like you and acts like you, and that's all you want, you're going to be really uncomfortable in the next few chapters. Because God explodes our comfort zone of what Christianity looks like. He demolishes it. He crucifies it in the sort of people that are invited in to the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised that the witness would move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we sort of see a bridge where these Hellenists are invited in. These Jews that, that have taken on Greek culture. And then we have these deacons that start preaching These Greek deacons stand up and they start preaching the gospel, the witness. Last week we looked at Stephen who was stoned to death. And there is a bridge to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel, the witness, Jesus is king, is moving out from Jerusalem. You see, in Jerusalem, the witness has created all kinds of chaos and turmoil. This message of this false prophet who has handed his power and authority over to some illiterate fishermen, this movement 
has made its way to some 20,000 people at this point. And the religious elite in Jerusalem, they can't take it. He's talking about a Messiah. He's talking about, they're talking about this king. They're talking about this new temple and his person. And they are furious and they are angry. And all they can think to do is we've got to kill them. We've got to kill them. We've got to stamp them out. And last week we see it began with this deacon, just a deacon, Stephen, who was killed, who was stoned to death, who was drugged outside of the city like Jesus and beaten and killed. And the question now is, okay, now what are they going to do? We're killing their preachers. Maybe that'll shut them up. Maybe that'll stop them. But we see here it fits all into the strategy of Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. First of all, in chapter 8, we see a weird strategy of persecution. Notice verse 1, and Saul. Last week we made mention of Saul, the villain, who was honored at the stoning of Stephen, and he delighted in it. Here it says he approved his execution. He was overseeing what was going on to Stephen. And there arose that day... On that very day, as Stephen breathes his last breath, notice a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And as we said, there, there's 10, at least 10,000 in Jerusalem, 20,000 as you spread out from Jerusalem. And here there are folks that are harassing them, literally a mega terror destruction against the Christians. And notice what it does. They are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And so as Stephen is killed, as Stephen is stoned, what happens is the the, the Christians begin to move out into these refugee places, into Judea and Samaria, these towns where they can find security, these towns where they can plant themselves and hide except the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. They're probably ministering to the needs of those who are being persecuted. But notice verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now that's important because when someone was stoned, they weren't to be given a burial. It was usually unjust. It was usually that, that unjust to give them a burial to honor them in this way. But with the great lamentation, this is like any other funeral during that time. They are screaming and they are wailing. Many of them would have been Jews who were, who were furious at what had happened to Stephen. This has gone too far. This has reached a level that we do not approve of. But notice verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. Even in light of many who had disagreed with him, Saul was ravaging the church. Now, the word used there is for a wild beast hunting down to destroy its prey. That is Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. He is a religious terrorist who sees it as an act of worship to kill Christians. That is who we will call Paul. He is the Hitler of the story. He is the face of evil in the New Testament. He is literally taking men and women from their homes, beating them, throwing them in jail. He is taking fathers and mothers from their children to throw them in prison. 
And they walk around the city having been beaten and with chains on their wrist as billboards. Don't oppose the Sanhedrin. Don't oppose Saul. But notice what happens in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word for scattered here means to throw out seed so it can be planted. And literally, Christians are being moved from Jerusalem. They're being scattered throughout the known world to be planted, to take root in other areas. And how are they doing that? They went about preaching the word. And this is public preaching. And so what persecution is doing here is it's throwing the Christians throughout the world into other cultures so that they would still stand and publicly witness Christ. It's not silencing them. It's just moving them to new locations. And we see here God's strategy to spread the church is through persecution. It's through suffering and opposition. And here we see, just like over and over we've seen in Acts, the wicked deeds of men are serving the purposes of God. The wicked deeds of men are serving the purposes of God to propel the witness out. One of the church fathers says the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Meaning, when it comes to Christianity, we don't say what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. The history of the church declares what kills us makes us stronger. And the way the witness moves forward is even through persecution. Even through Christians being hung to death in Jerusalem, the word is only spreading. It's like wildfire where you are trying to stomp it out and all you are doing is spreading it into new areas. That's how God spreads the witness into the world from Jerusalem out. And that's not how we would do it. That's not how we would do it. If we said, how do we get the gospel to the ends of the earth? How about persecution? Yeah, that's a great strategy, persecution. But but that's exactly what happens. What what if our missions program included? Here's our philosophy. We're going to preach so boldly and radically in Richmond, Kentucky, that the people here can't stand us. And they take away our building. And they deem us as outlaws. And they tell us, move somewhere else. That's exactly what's going on in Jerusalem. And that's how God is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth through persecution. We would say that's losing. Because so often when we think about missions, we think about more resources, more stuff, more rights, more privileges. And all of that is good. But if you look around at the church church today, most of those things have just made us complacent. The more we get, the more selfish we get. And we just sort of crawl along. God says, I'm going to fan this flame with persecution. I'm going to to spread the church. I'm going to give credibility to this, this witness of a suffering servant as you have to suffer for my message. But one writer says this, they went as missionaries, not refugees. He spread them out, the word scattered, to be planted in other areas, to grow, to, to, to take root and grow. They went as missionaries, not refugees. And I know this about some of you. You look at your life right now and you feel like a refugee. You say, 
this is not what I would have chosen for myself. You, you look around at where you live. You look around at your life. And you say, I would not have put myself right here right now. This is not what I dreamed for my life goals. Even decisions that you have made that have put you in situations that, that you would look on and you would say, how is God, God going to use this? How, how is God going to use? You know what? If I would have made that decision at that time, God could use me more or better. And it's not true. God has sovereignly planted you right where you are in this moment today to take root as a witness for the gospel. He, he is sovereign over the horrific circumstances that you may have even played a part in. Decisions that you may have des- decided in sin to take part in. God is still King. He is still Lord. Jesus is ruling and He wants to use you even in your condition and situation to witness the gospel. He has scattered you sovereignly to be missionaries where you are. And so you go to work tomorrow and you don't go as a refugee. You, you, you go as a witness. You go as a missionary. God has put me here to witness His glory, to declare Jesus is King. You go to school tomorrow, and you're not, just, you're not just moving through without purpose. You say, no, God has ordered my whole life, and He has scattered, thrown, planted me here to be where my feet are as a wit- witness for His glory. But notice we see a weird strategy, and then we see a weird place. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Philip is another deacon. The Hellenists were those who were sort of outsiders. They never really lived around the temple. And maybe it is that the Jews saw them as a greater enemy. And Philip was probably connected to Stephen, probably running for his life here. And he ends up in the city of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were people from northern Israel. And they had intermarried with the Canaanites. And they had even come up with their own law, their own version of the Pentateuch. And they had actually even built their own temple that opposed the temple in Jerusalem. They had come up with their own religion. And they were viewed by the Jews as half-breeds and heretics. And Samaria would have been a rough part of town. It would have been somewhere you didn't go in alone. And here Philip ends up there. You see, we know the story of Jesus about the Good Samaritan. That story is scandalous because the Samaritan is the hero. Nobody listening to Jesus tell that story would say, I know who's going to save the day, the Samaritan. No, he would have been the villain as the story is being told. But he's the hero, and that's what's scandalous. This was a place in Samaria where Jesus and the disciples are ministering, and John turns to Jesus and says, can you just call down fire on this place? It wasn't a place where people went for vacation. It wasn't a place that Philip would say, you know what? I'm going to end up as a missionary. I'm going to end up as the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Samaria. That's my goal. No, he would have never thought about this. And here he ends up in Samaria with the gospel. And notice he proclaims Christ. He tells the Samaritans, Jesus is king. He has died on the cross for your sins. He he has been raised from the dead. This Nazarene, this Galilean, this hick 
who was mutilated and killed by the Roman government. He is ruling. He is reigning. He will forgive you of your sins if you believe in him. And the people of Samaria began to believe the gospel. And notice verse 7 as they hear the gospel as he performs signs, unclean spirits. They come out, verse 7, and they are crying with a loud voice. This is a sign from God that, that Jesus is toppling the kingdom of Satan. Demons are shrieking. Those who have been paralyzed are walking. And then notice verse 8. There was so much joy in that city. Now you see what's happened? Persecution in Jerusalem has led to joy in Samaria. That's God's mission strategy. Persecution at home leads to gladness among the nations. And that's what, exactly what we see in Samaria. We see persecution in Jerusalem has led to the joy in Samaria through a Greek layman missionary preaching about a Nazarene killed and crucified by the Romans. And it's all twisted and it's all weird and it's all complicated at this point. And yet they believe. And then as we move through eight, the, chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, the apostles show up, not to approve what's going on, but to confirm, yes, this is a work of God. And they lay hands on them, and there are signs just like we saw at Pentecost. Now they're in Samaria. God has moved into a new location with His witness. It is true. They are believing the gospel. They are, they, are, are, they are trusting in the witness. Jesus is king. And all of this activity in Samaria, it, it gets the attention of a magician. Now, do you understand how complicated the story is getting at this point? Jews, Greeks, Hellenists, deacons, Nazarene. Romans, crosses, magicians. It's like an Indiana Jones movie at this point. And this magician sees what's going on in the city. Simon, who the people would turn to and say, he's great, he's got a power from God. And yet we realize he's just a snake oil salesman. He's just full of gimmicks and tricks. First century David Copperfield. But he sees what's going on with Philip. He sees what's going on when the apostles arrive, like we read earlier. And he says, I want some of that. My whole life has been, been to be real. I don't want to use all the smoke and mirrors. I want this real, otherworldly power. And, and he, he makes a false profession of faith. He actually even gets baptized. And he's standing around saying, well, that didn't do anything. I don't feel any different. Probably going around to his friends, laying hands on them. Nothing's changed. Nothing's different. And so he goes up to Peter and John and says, can I buy some of that? Can I buy some of the Spirit? I want to be able to do the tricks you do. Can I buy some of what you have? And notice verse 20. Peter, in perfect Peter fashion, turns to him and says, may your silver perish with you. Literally, he says, to hell with you and your money. Literally, that is the translation. To hell with you and your money. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part or lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. And he calls him to repent that he may be forgiven. Because he says here, you are still full of bitterness. You are jealous about what's going on with us. And you need to call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. 
And Simon says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come. See, he's still focused on what he can get temporarily. The, the situation changed. You may be judged. Well, please pray that that doesn't happen. He's not believing in Christ. Peter is so insulted that this man would come to him and, and try to just go through the motions, try to pay for the gospel. And he rebukes him harshly of, of this sort of, thinking that the gospel is this magical incantation that many of us here today are guilty of. We think in our mind, if I just go through those motions, if I just repeat that prayer, if I just walk the aisle, if I'm just baptized, I just join the church, and I just go through those motions, here's what we think. Jesus has to save me, right? He's got to save me if I go through the motions. And it's a power play with Jesus. If I do this, you have to do, you have to save me. And Peter says, no, you've got to bow down and believe in Jesus. You don't come to him for what you can get out of it. And here he even tries to pay them off. He even tries to pay for Jesus. If I pay money, then you have to give me some of that spirit. You have to give me some of that gospel. And so many in the church think that. If I give, if I tithe, if I send my seed money in to the evangelist, then, I, then God, you have to bless me. Here, Simon is the first health wealth charlatan. He would have had a show on TBN. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You don't use Jesus. He's king and he's Lord. And you better bow before him or you will be judged. Verse 25. Notice John and Peter, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, when they see this is taking root in Samaria, they return to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages in Samaria. So John and Peter don't just go, yeah, that's nice. No, they embrace the mission. If God is saving Samaritans, we want to get in on it. And so as they move back to Jerusalem, they too are preaching the gospel. And they too are embracing and engaging this witness. If you want to think about Samaria, this is first century New Orleans. Where in New Orleans you have French Catholicism mixed with voodoo and southern culture. Here in Samaria you would have had pagan Judaism with demon-possessed magicians. It's weird and it's crazy. And the apostles say, this is what we want to be in, we'll be a part of. Jesus says, this is where I'm going to send you first. And it wouldn't have been a place they wanted to go. It would be like saying to us today, there's a colony of illegal immigrant Muslims. And I want you to go preach the gospel to them. And some of you say, no. No, send them back. But this is where Jesus sends his disciples to their worst enemies first. That's where he sends us. And I realized in my own life, those places in my own heart and in my own life where I go, no, not those people. No, not those places. The Bible is saying, yes, those places. They need Jesus. Just like you needed Jesus. I'll never forget, I just got into a church as a youth pastor. And one of the things the church was doing at the time is they were bringing buses of kids from downtown to the church for youth group on Wednesday night. And they were wild and they were crazy. And most of them didn't have parents at home. Some of them didn't even know who their parents were. 
And they would come to the church on Wednesday night and they would destroy things. They would come to the church on Wednesday night and it was a mess at times. And so while the parents are interviewing me, they go, are we still going to do that if you come? And my response was, yes, that sounds awesome. Well, they're tearing the building up. Well, we got a budget, right? We can fix the building for Jesus, right? And I'll never forget one mom says, why would we do that? And I said, because we want them to be saved. We're already doing it. Why, why would we stop? And we want them to be saved. And her response was so candid. And bless her heart for her honesty. She says, what if they get saved and ask my daughter out? And my response to her was, well, you can say no. You're the parent, right? I got a book. I kiss dating goodbye. You should read it. You can say no if you want her to date. Send her out. That's, what, what are you talking about? Well, it's just those people. And she was being brutally honest with me. And I said, well, let's put it this way. What if it's somebody from a better part of town who's not a Christian? Would you be better with that? And she was brutally honest and said, you know what? Yeah. And I said, that's the problem. You don't understand the gospel. Those people in that place... And that's what Jesus does all through the Bible. He, he takes us into places where you're going, not those people. I don't want to go there. And Jesus says, we're going. Are you going to repent and go with me? That's the question of the book of Acts. Are you going to repent and go with me? And we all have those stories in our life. All through this room, there are different categories of those people and that place. And the question is, will you pray that God would change your heart so that you would have a burden for the same people He would have a burden for? You know what maximizes the, the power of the gospel? Is when you go to people you should hate and preach the gospel. By the way, you would have hated Paul in the story because he's killing Christians. He's a religious, a religious terrorist. And you wouldn't want him to have the gospel. And yet you read most of his writings here today. And you, you base your whole belief system on a religious terrorist who came to Jesus, who handed you, hands you the authority of the Scripture as what to stake your life on. And that's the way Jesus does it. So we go from a weird strategy to a weird place and finally to a weird person. Notice verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now that's key, because there would have been two roads there. There would have been a main road and a back road. And what the Spirit tells Philip is, I want you to take the back road. And Philip would have said, well, first of all, I like it here in Samaria now. I mean, these people are believing the gospel. They think I'm great. They're about ready to kick their magician out of town because of me. They think I'm awesome. And why do we keep moving away from Jerusalem? I mean, there are thousands of Christians there. There's this movement in Samaria. Why would I go to a desert place? Why would I go to a place where no one is? A back road out in the middle of nowhere. And here's why. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official. Now, this would have been an African, a black man. He would have looked very unique and out of place. And here he's on this back road in his chariot. It also says that he was a eunuch. This means certain body parts were rendered useless so he could serve the queen full time. 
the, the queen of Ethiopia here. He is her minister of money. He is a treasurer of finance. He would have been very wealthy, but he wouldn't have had a family, and he would have looked very out of place in Jerusalem. And it says he's from Ethiopia. At this time, Ethiopia was the very end of the earth. If you make it to Ethiopia, there ain't nowhere else to go. That is the end of the earth. You're not going any further. And get this, Philip meets an Ethiopian from the end of nowhere out on a back road. And the Spirit has sovereignly orchestrated this moment. And he says, Philip, do you see that chariot with that weird looking guy in it? What I want you to do is go over and have Bible study with him. I want you to sit down and have Bible study. Yeah, he's reading Isaiah. I've orchestrated this whole thing. Go over and talk to him. And when Philip gets over, he realizes he's reading from Isaiah. In verse 32, we see the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Here there is this innocent suffering servant who's not opening his mouth, who's not lashing back. He's just enduring justice like a processed cow being moved to slaughter. His throat cut. Y'all can laugh. No, that was good. I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> but, but he's just moving through. He's not opening his mouth and his throat is slit. And the eunuch is going, I've heard all kinds of debate over this in Jerusalem this week. Some people say it's Israel, they're being unjustly treated. Some people believe it's Isaiah, he was unjustly treated. And he turns to Philip and says, who is it? And Philip says, I'm going to tell you who it is. This suffering servant was Jesus. He's the sinless son of God who was led to slaughter like a lamb and didn't open his mouth. You know why he didn't open his mouth? So he would be killed and crucified for your sins. And in here, this passage talks about his generations. His generations are the nations that the Spirit is coming out to get and bring to him. And guess what? You, a black man, out in the middle of nowhere from Ethiopia, you can be a part of his kingdom. This man would have just visited Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed to be a part of what was going on there. And he went to Jerusalem to see and to experience God. But he wasn't allowed in. And now, out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, he's hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ from Philip, a Greek deacon. And he believes. And then even something even more spectacular. There's some water out in the middle of the desert. And he is baptized to display his allegiance to Christ. This man who is moving away from the temple finds the temple in Jesus out in the middle of nowhere. A eunuch who would have no legacy, who would have no heritage, is all of a sudden folded into the heritage of Jesus. A black man in his royal court in a pool of water in the desert with a Greek deacon. That makes no sense. What if our mission strategy was that? Just go where nobody is. Just go, you'll find somebody. That makes no sense. And yet the Spirit is showing us we're not in control of it. The Spirit is in control of this. 
And when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. But notice this, the eunuch went on rejoicing. This man who's searching for meaning, he's trying to figure out what the Scriptures say. He's trying to figure out how he can get in on God's plan. And here through the witness of Philip, he gets in on it. Verse 40, but Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, notice again, he preached the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip again is saying, you're saving people in Samaria. You're saving people out in the middle of nowhere. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm just going to keep on all the way to Caesarea. And when we get to Acts 21, he's there. He has a family. Philip actually has four daughters who are prophetess. He just keeps on preaching. He just keeps on preaching wherever he goes. But we see the witness has moved from Jerusalem, Judea, out in the middle of nowhere to strange people. We have Samaria, this shunned place. We have this Ethiopian, this shunned person. And the Spirit is saying to us today, everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. Get over it. You're invited too. But everyone's invited. And one of the things we learn from chapter 8, and we're going to learn as we move forward, that the sin of racism and prejudice is a mission issue. You know what happens at the Tower of Babel? The people of God say, we want one place. We want one tower. And we want one people. And they build this monument, this massive town to themselves. And God says, you can't have one place and you can't have one people. And he separates them by language. And he goes out and gives them many languages and they go out and they create many cultures. And we look around at the world and we see the cultures and we see the curse of Babel, but we also see the glory of God because God is redeeming us from the curse of Babel, from many names, from many cultures, to one word and one king under the authority of Jesus. And it's a mission issue. It's not a political issue. It's a mission issue. Do we want to be one people in one place, people just like me, act just like me, or do we want the glory of God all kinds of people from all kinds of places? Weird people in weird places. We're all in. Because that's what Jesus is doing. And to engage in that is a mission issue. A mission issue. And the question is, will we be on mission with Him? Well, another thing that we see here is the Bible is not colorblind. It's not colorblind. We like to say, I don't see color. And I know why we say it. Because we want to say we're tolerant of other people. It's not true. You do see color. You do see cultures. It's real. And it's designed for the glory of God. Because the New Jerusalem is a kaleidoscope of culture. There's all kinds of cultures that gather in the New Jerusalem. And here we see the Spirit is gathering them in. And the question is, will we be a part of it? What we want and we should long for former South American mystics who right now are worshiping Mother Earth, taking her offerings, burning them. We should long and work to see them worshiping beside those in Asia right now who are bowing before ancestors and worshiping them 
all gathered together under the banner that Jesus is King. That's what we work for as a church. It's not to gather here, be comfortable, be safe, everybody looks just like me. No, it is to move out and wage war on Babel through declaring the witness to the ends of the earth. We should long for those from poverty-stricken trailer parks to show up here. Long for, not just, not just say if they come, we'll be okay with it. No, to penetrate those areas. You see, some of us go, well, that's dangerous. Others of us go, well, they won't tithe. No, we say, so what? Jesus is King and Lord. That's where we're going. Just like we go to the rich suburbs and hang doorknobbers. Like, that's what Jesus is doing here in the book of Acts. And the question is, are we going to get in on it? The reality is there will be former Muslim terrorists in heaven. And you know what? They will be worshiping right alongside former Southern Baptist deacons who were lost most of their life and then repented of their religion too. They will be together in heaven. And and are we going to work to that end? We believe that urban hip-hop culture will be right alongside rural redneck culture in Jerusalem. It will be. And you won't have anything to say about it. And you know what honors Jesus? Is when you look across the aisle and when those folks are delighting in something, you worship Jesus because of it and say, thank you, God, for allowing them in here. One of the glories of my family is I have a very white son, very white, who loves hip-hop and rap. He can rap a little bit. He's kind of good at it. But then I also have a very black son who is a former Ethiopian. And his favorite song right now is this. It's got this lyric in it. There may be a little mud on my boots, but I'm taking you uptown tonight. (laughs) And I just look at my family and go, y'all are messed up. Like, it's not supposed to happen that way. But I love it. I I praise God for it. And you know what? When that happens in the church, God loves it. When you can delight in other people's culture, when you can set aside your prejudice and go, let me learn just a little bit more about you. Because your culture and your background will be redeemed by Jesus in heaven. And I want to know more. And when you sing to Jesus in that language, in that dialect, in that accent, I love it. Some of you Yankees in here, if you're up here, you're going to hear a redneck Tennessean screaming, not singing on a Sunday. And the question is, will you go, yes, you've bound us together in Jesus. That is what Jesus is doing in the book of Acts. Will you delight in it? You see, we've got to get over this. Jesus comes to weird people in weird places. And everything that would make Jesus a Jew, everything that would make him a Jew in his culture would make us uncomfortable if he showed up here today. We would turn around and go, whoa, why is he wearing that? Why is he talking that way? Who, are, who is that? It would make us uncomfortable. But in the story of the Bible, we're the weirdos. When we read our Bibles, there ain't no white folks. There are no white folks. We read our Bibles and we see white folks. We make our movies and we hire white actors. Moses wasn't a middle-aged white man. 
Now, he may have been an NRA member. I don't know. But he wasn't a middle-aged white man. And it's not all, it's not, it's not as though you have a bunch of Jews, a bunch of Hebrews in the line of Jesus, and all of a sudden the Messiah pops out as a Pert Plus model. He wasn't white with long hair. He was a little Jewish guy. He was. And it would make us uncomfortable. But that Middle Eastern Nazarene comes to weird people from Tennessee and Richmond and says, you're invited. Come on in. Come on in. I love you. Be a part of the kingdom. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to be mutilated and crucified under the wrath of God for you. That's how much I love you. And that's how much I want Richmond, Tennessee, and culture a part of my kingdom is I'm going to die and I'm going to shed my blood for it. And Jesus comes to weird people in weird places. And to be honest, that's what frustrates some of us here today. We don't have any control over it, who Jesus is going to. You don't. And that's what, that's what makes you panic a little bit. You walk around the church and you go, how'd you get in here? I would have never invited you. And you know what Jesus says? It ain't your party. 